Good morning. I hope you guys are having a good summer. Um, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Central. For those of you who are new, um, this morning we are continuing our summer series in the book of Philippians. So if you guys have a Bible, um, you can turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to be starting at verse 1 uh, this morning. Uh, for those of you who uh, grew up in the 1980s or earlier, uh, you'd remember something called a record player. Uh, actually, it's not that uh, crazy anymore because like, they're selling record players again. If you go to London Drugs, you'll see record players and stuff again. Um, but I remember as a kid, um, when I was about three years old, I got my first record player. It was a Fisher-Price uh, record player, and uh, my mom and my grandma would buy me these uh, records uh, to play on it. I remember... Um, you know, moving the little needle over, and, and they would buy me um, uh, story records. So they were like audio books uh, for children, and um, they, uh, they were kind of like radio plays. So there were lots of voices on them and that kind of thing. And two of my favorite records uh, were Humpty Dumpty and this long-lost record uh, that I almost for a while thought didn't exist anymore. It was called What's the Matter, Nanny Bird? And it was a Christian uh, like little story album for kids. Um, and you guys have no idea like the sheer joy I had as I looked this up on Google. Um, I was like, it exists. Like I haven't seen that cover for like 30 years. I haven't looked at, I used to stare at that thing and wonder like, what is that weird slug saxophone guy over in the corner? So anyway, this is my childhood. I remember, uh, you know, three, four or five years old, laying on my bed and putting a little needle over and listening to these, these stories. But here's the thing. Um, no one told me you had to turn the record over. So um, as Providence would have it, I listened to uh, the first half of What's the Better Nanny Bird, like all the time. And, uh, and then with Humpty Dumpty, I did the second half, okay? So with, uh, with What's... <laughs> What's the matter, Nanny Bird? I never found out how they solved her problem. And with Humpty Dumpty, I never found out how he got into a whole bunch of pieces. Finally, my brother told me, hey, you got to turn it to the other side, get the whole story. Oh, see, this is back when parents didn't really care to explain <laughs> toys to their children. Just, ah, just go play with it. All right, what these two uh, records, uh, as I was thinking about these, it just kind of reminded me a little bit of what we're going to encounter in Philippians chapter 4. It's just a fun kind of, my fun way of, of illustrating uh, two actually very relevant and serious uh, issues. Uh, and the first one is, uh, is depression. Um, What's the matter, Nanny Bird? is the title of the cover. And I just thought that's a very apt title for those who struggle with depression. What is the matter with me? Or as Psalm 42 might say, why are you downcast, O my soul? When we're depressed or sad or downcast, when we lack joy, we're not really sure why sometimes. And we sometimes, just like I never heard the end of Nanny Bird's story and the solution to the problem, you might feel that way too, like you're stuck without a answer to this question. You don't know how to get unstuck. You don't know how to get out of this uh, depression that you're in. In the case of Humpty Dumpty, it illustrates the problem of anxiety. 
namely the situation Humpty finds himself in, I'm in pieces. That's Humpty's experience. And it, that's the experience of anxiety. When we're anxious in our minds and, and our minds swirl with a thousand different things, we feel fragmented and chaotic and like we're in pieces. The Greek word Paul uses in our text this morning for being anxious literally means to be pulled apart, just like Humpty. So if you're a human being here this morning, I trust there's no dogs in the room, um, you have had to deal at some level with the wild mental beast we call anxiety. And possibly it's evil twin depression. For probably all of us in the room, the fight for joy and for peace is a daily struggle. Proverbs 12, verse 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. And the heart to the Hebrews is actually the seat of their thoughts and their feelings. And so anxiety, even in our minds, it actually has the effect of weighing us down. And that's the depression. See, they're very linked, these two things. But a good word makes him glad. So if you identify with that struggle, if you feel weighed down by depression, anxiety, sadness, I hope this text will be a good word for you. It may not solve all your problems. I trust that it won't, but I pray it will be a good word that makes you to some little bit more joyful and more glad this morning. So let's read um, from Philippians chapter four. Paul says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche, these are two ladies, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As I said earlier, anxiety is something that impacts pretty much everybody at some level. Depression is something a lot of people struggle with as well. And those might be minor or they might be constantly like daily crushing struggles. But anxiety and depression are not new problems. They are part of the human condition. But in our current cultural setting, we are dealing with an increasing amount of these challenges of anxiety and depression. So if you aren't directly affected in some way, the chances are good that you know a friend, a brother, a parent, a child who is struggling with this. And we also want to learn this morning, how do we help each other with this struggle? In 2010, an IMS health report recorded that 253 million prescriptions were written for antidepressants in the U.S. The population of the U.S. is just over 300 million. The rate of U.S. adolescents and young adults dying of suicide has reached its highest level in nearly two decades, 
according to a report published in the Journal of American Medical Association. That was just this June. In 2017, there were 47% more suicides among people aged 15 to 19 than in the year 2000, making it the second leading cause of death in teenagers. Anxiety disorders now affect 25% of children between 13 and 18. Research shows untreated children with anxiety disorders are at higher risk to perform poorly in school, to miss out on important social experiences, and engage in substance abuse. And there's a lot of uh, factors contributing to this rise, including smartphones, social media use, and related issues in our lifestyle. But many things can cause anxiety in our lives. We worry about work. We worry about the direction of our culture, the direction of our lives. We worry about our families. We worry about what people think of us. We worry about our future. We worry about church. It's likely the situation Paul's dealing with in Philippians 4, this anxiety he's speaking to is a result of these two ladies who are prominent women in the church in Philippi because they're not getting along. And he urges them to be united, but it's also probably causing anxiety and difficulty in the Philippian church. And they're not joyful people right now. Anxiety affects our mental life. It's a uh, future-oriented often as well, as we envision the worst-case scenario in any given situation. And our minds just go and go and go. Depression, on the other hand, mainly affects our emotional life. We feel regrets and sadness about things that could have been in the past. We feel hopeless about the future. The result of anxiety and depression is we're walking through life with no joy and no peace. Anxiety is a direct enemy of peace. Anxiety means to be pulled apart, and peace means to be whole and complete, like Humpty being put back together. Depression, on the other hand, is the enemy of joy. Some of us don't even realize that we're struggling with this, but we're just irritable. We're avoiding people. We're constantly tired. We feel numb to life. We're short of breath. And for those who really struggle with these things at a deep level, words often fail to describe the feelings if you are in that. All you can do is speak in metaphors. I feel like I'm slogging through a swamp. I feel like I'm walking through fog. I just feel gray all the time. Charles Spurgeon said, the mind can descend far lower than the body. For the mind, there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain amount of wounds and no more. But the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Spoken like a man who struggled with this issue. Yet as common as this issue is, as much as we know it's out there, even Charles Spurgeon struggled with it. We have to admit that we get uncomfortable in church with people who struggle with depression or anxiety. And we don't know how to help. We don't know how to have compassion. We don't know how to understand. The result is we become like Job's friends. Remember those guys? They were 
there for a little while. And then they became miserable comforters to Job as he was depressed and anxious. And they ended up heaping an extra weight of guilt and heaviness on his shoulders. And that's what we do when we don't understand and we don't have compassion for one another. You could even read Philippians 4, 6 and say, well, hey, look, Paul's just saying rejoice. He's saying, don't be anxious. So just, that's what you need to do. Just get over it. We communicate this way to one another, but is how we communicate matters. How we communicate to one another as Christians matters. Generally speaking, I think when we hear about a fellow Christian who's struggling, we're like, what? You're struggling? How could this be? Are you even a Christian? We do this with our kids. My daughter will be struggling with anxiety at night. It's like the fifth night in a row, right? And I'm just tired. So as a loving dad to my little girl, what do I do? Stop worrying. Okay, there. Be joyful, okay? Rolled eyes, frustrated tone. Do you know what this does? It makes her worry more. Because now she's, I've upset dad. And she worries more and it's just more guilt on top of everything. I have not said these words in love. In fact, those moments, I'm guilty of being anxious too because I'm anxious that she's anxious. So I need to check my heart. Am I anxious as well? So I just try to fix it and I don't listen. I don't understand. I don't seek to understand. Maybe some of us get the listening part down, but we still just, we don't identify with this struggle. So we're just like, all right, I've listened long enough. Can you just get over it now? But here's what I want you to know about people who are being crushed by depression or anxiety. People who are depressed or overwhelmed by anxiety do not know how to get over it. They don't even know why it's happening to them. They don't know. Their soul is in turmoil and they probably are completely confused and they need God's people to show compassion. This is how Paul speaks. Paul's tone is not, hey, just stop being anxious already. Just be joyful for crying out loud. Here's why we shouldn't read his words this way. Remember, Paul is a prisoner in a Roman prison, which is not like a Lululemon of prisons, okay? It's like the Walmart of prisons, okay? It's, <laughs> sorry, Walmart, you got enough money. Okay, it's a, it's a low-level prison. And Paul himself is experiencing anxiety. In chapter 228, he talks about sending Epaphroditus to the Philippian church. And he says this, he says, I am the more eager to send him. Therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Paul's anxious. He's experiencing anxiety himself. So listen to Paul's tone at the beginning of chapter four again. Here's what he says. Therefore, my, my brothers, sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He's like gushing about them. Love you guys. He speaks with love. He loves these people. He's gushing about them. This means Paul's words to us about rejoicing in all these things 
They don't come as a get-it-together kind of command. Their expression of his desire to see the church become a kind of people who are marked more and more by joy and peace and less and less by anxiety and depression as they stand firm in their faith. They come from a man who understands anxiety. They are a command, but they're a command with love. So, isn't the reason we don't like opening up to one another about this is because we think people won't understand us. We think nobody can really understand. So it's like, I'll just quietly suffer and we suffer more because we're all alone. But we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when a fellow Christian is struggling with these things. It is a heavy world out there. And there's a myriad of reasons for people's heaviness. And just in case you're not convinced, okay, just going to give you a, a quick list of Bible characters who we know and love who struggled with this issue. King David, Elijah, Naomi, Job, Martha, Gideon, Jeremiah, Paul, me, your pastor, one of your pastors. In fact, I'm learning it's a bit of an occupational hazard <laughs> for pastors. Anybody who does mental work, it's an occupational hazard. I'll tell you more about that later. But we struggle. Spiritual giants in the Bible struggle with these things. And not, and not just in the Bible, outside the Bible. Charles Spurgeon, William Cowper, Randy Alcorn. They have been marked by these issues. So let us walk with understanding and grace to each other. It's a common struggle. It's a human struggle. So with all that said, before we get into Paul's instructions, let me identify a couple of pitfalls that we can encounter as we're trying to find solutions for lacking joy and being anxious. So the first pitfall will be this, hyper-spiritualizing. We hyper-spiritualize the problem. The hyper-spiritual person says, all I have to do is pray and my anxiety should just go away. I don't need to look at my lifestyle or other practices. I don't need to think about how my body plays a part in my anxiety and depression. That's what they're thinking. And when a hyper-spiritual hyper person prays about their ailment and they don't get an answer, they begin to doubt and they feel guilty. Oh, what's wrong with me? Maybe I'm not spiritual enough. Because the answer is always sin to the hyper-spiritual. Always sin. Now, don't mishear me. It could be sin. You may be anxious because of sin. You may be failing to trust God, but the hyper-spiritual person refuses to look at other possibilities. They essentially are Gnostics who believe that the soul matters, but the body plays no part. It's a denial of the Bible's teaching on the body and the soul. So it's a very real possibility if you're struggling with this this morning that there may be something medically wrong. There may be something in your diet. There may be something and you need to go see a doctor. Listen, that's not an unspiritual thing to do for the hyper-spiritual. God gave you a body. It gets sick. Your body will impact how you think and feel. Other extreme, second pitfall. The second pitfall is naturalizing. We naturalize the problem. The naturalist says, 
All I need is a pill. It's just the body. It can't be anything more. I, again, I don't need to change my lifestyle. I don't need to pray. I don't need to read the scriptures. The naturalist believes that it's only chemicals in the brain and that's all it could be. The naturalist sees no need to consult with maybe a pastor or a counselor because they just need the prescription so they can get on with life. They don't have to examine anything else. See, both these have in common is they want a quick fix. They want a quick fix solution. But neither the hyper-spiritual nor the naturalist response are making lifestyle changes or dealing with unhealthy or sinful patterns of thought or getting to the root of the problem. And as you probably guessed, what we would advocate to you would be a holistic approach. You've got to pay attention to everything, your body, your soul. King David said in Psalm 31, You have known the distress of my soul. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. So there's sin there. And my bones waste away. What's your problem, David? Is it your body, your soul? Well, it's kind of both. David's darkness of soul led to his body wasting away. A Christian view of a human being is our body and soul are so interconnected, they're not easily separable. They're distinct, but they're, they're so intertwined that what happens in the body impacts the soul and vice versa. An example of this is Elijah. Elijah, you remember him. We always talk about his really awesome champion throwdown story, right? He defeats the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. They have a contest. His God answers his prayers. The prophets of Baal look like, you know, they're ashamed that their God didn't answer because their God's not real. And so you think, victory, awesome, but then nobody repents. And Queen Jezebel threatens Elijah to kill him. And so Elijah runs away into the wilderness, discouraged and depressed and fearful and anxious and wanting to die. He travels toward Mount Sinai, which is like hundreds of kilometers away. But that's a place of spiritual power. That's where Moses met with God. He wants to get back onto that mountain again. But along the way, do you know what the first thing Elijah needed was? Sleep. And food. An angel comes and visits him while he's asleep and brings him some food. And this happens two times. He falls asleep again the next night. He's exhausted. He needs food. And then the second time, the angel actually also physically touches him. He needs physical touch. He needs things to do with his body. You're not going to make it, Elijah. But what an unspiritual thing for an angel to do. Give food. Do you remember Jesus when he raised that little girl and then he's like, hey, get her something to eat. Like God cares about your body. He cares about it. He made it. But that wasn't all Elijah needed. Elijah also needed to address his spiritual issue. He needed to meet with God. So as he got to Mount Sinai, 
Elijah was expecting a big display of power, but instead God spoke to him, remember, in a silence and in a whisper. Gave him peace. The point is, Elijah had both physical needs, he had soul needs relating to his depression and anxiety. So as we look at Paul's teaching now in chapter 4, we need to put this in a framework of a holistic picture. Paul's not going to answer every question about this issue. He's going to give us some practices that we can practice for this. So if this doesn't help you fully today, look, we got more next week. There's a whole Bible full of stuff, okay? We're going to look at a few spiritual practices to address our souls. So let's turn to that. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 9 says, uh, Paul sums up the section of verse 4 to 9, and he says this. He says, practice these things. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So the goal is to get rid of anxiety, to experience peace, and that these things that Paul's talking about are the things he mentions in verse 4 to 9. We won't cover every single one of those. But in Paul's mind, what he's thinking about is practice. These are practices. We use that word intentionally. Practice these things. So this isn't like a, hey, you know, I prayed about it and I was still anxious. Like I prayed about it once. I prayed about it for a week, but I'm still anxious. It's like, he's like, practice this. Like, this should become part of your whole lifestyle. Practice. Uh, it reminds me of uh, this, this interview that Allen Iverson, he was a famous NBA player. He was a Hall of Famer. Years ago, there's this classic interview with Allen Iverson where he, it's right after a game and they've lost the game. And, uh, you know, the media is, like, peppering him with questions, like, why don't you go to more practices with your teammates? Like, wouldn't that help? And he's like, practice. And he just keeps saying the word practice. He says it, like, 15 times in the course of a minute. And they have a little counter, you know, on the TSN thing. They count how many times he says it, right? It's a really funny clip. You can go YouTube it later, okay? Practice. Why are we talking about practice? We're talking about practice. He just goes on and on. But that's what we're talking about in Philippians 4, verses 4 to 9. We're talking about practice. Practice is not something you do occasionally when you feel up for it, when you fit in your schedule. It's something that shapes your schedule. It's something that shapes you as a person. It's something you do regularly. What? are your practices. Maybe your practice is every night I watch three hours of Netflix. Maybe your practice is like I check Facebook like a hundred times a day. That's your practice. So what is your practice and what kind of practices is Paul going to give us? Remember, it's not a magic wand. This is going to be something we're going to have to progress into uh, my, my son's vice principal uses this phrase with his students. He says, practice makes progress. So it's going to take time. It's going to take time. It, it takes time to build these things into your life. So talk to me six months from now. How are you doing? Are you practicing these things? So what are some of the practices that we can practice? First, Paul says, practice rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, I will say, 
Rejoice, just in case you didn't get it. When the Hebrews mention something uh, twice like that, or three times, they're emphasizing, they want you to get this, rejoice. But how? How do we get our hearts to rejoice when we're struggling to believe and to feel? This is just too simplistic. Rejoice. I don't feel I can rejoice. My problem is I'm depressed. I can't rejoice. I want to, but I can't. How can you tell me rejoice if I can't rejoice? But notice what Paul says. He says, he doesn't say rejoice in your circumstance. He tells him rejoice in the Lord. That's Jesus. That's the key. Your circumstances might be awful. And you can't rejoice in your circumstance, but you can always rejoice in Jesus. You can always rejoice in him. He will never let you go. He is always there. Paul is saying, put your joy into Jesus. Remember that no one can take Jesus away from you. Nothing can separate you from his love, including depression, including anxiety. Put your joy in him. This doesn't mean you walk around with a smile all day. You might be going through something very difficult. But joy in Jesus is an anchor deep in your soul that holds you even through difficulty. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Actually, just after the first service this morning, Tyler Schultz, who's one of our missionaries, he, he was telling us that um, when there was all this tumultuous stuff going on in Burundi and Africa during this period of hostility and there was like grenade, they get, they're hearing grenades going off and stuff. You think your life's anxious, right? Tyler, like, experienced this, and he said that when, as soon as they would hear those sounds, their team would come together and they would rejoice. They'd rejoice. They built a practice of going, okay, we're going to rejoice. There's grenades going off. It's crazy. But that's a practice of rejoicing. The joy of the Lord is your strength. But how can we do this in a practical way? We might ask, what did Paul do? How did Paul rejoice? How did he express his joy? Well, if you go back to when he first met these Philippians, you know, he uh, meets a few of them and they get into this ragtag little church and then he actually gets thrown in jail. So he's in a Philippian jail with Silas and in Acts 16, 23, here's, what, what, here's their condition, okay? It says, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, that's Paul and Silas, they threw them into prison and ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. We're going to talk about prayer in a second, but they're singing. They're singing. That's how they expressed their joy is a very Hebrew thing to do. The Hebrews were a people of song. When they crossed through the Red Sea, Psalm 105, 43 reminds us, says that he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. Joy, singing, they go together very well. <laughs> 
Psalm 149, verse 1 to 3, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Rejoice and sing. And listen to this, Mennonites. Let them praise his name with dancing. It's in the, it's in the Bible. Dancing. Is your mind pulled apart and anxious? Does your soul feel like it's sinking? Well, practice what Paul did. Practice joy through song. Sing to your soul. Find time to do that kind of thing. Practice it. Second practice. Paul goes on to say, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. This is actually just an encouragement. But I'm gonna, we're going to attach a practice onto this in a, in a second. This is an encouragement to this church. The Lord Jesus is near. Now, some commentators think it's talking about Jesus' second coming. Like, Jesus is going to come back soon. But most commentators see this as an immediate, loving presence. God is near. Jesus is, he's right here. It's possible that Paul is leaving it vague because he wants you to get both ideas. He's here and he's coming back. Paul's encouragement is different here than what Peter encourages us to do in 1 Peter to deal with our anxiety. Peter emphasizes um, something different here. He says this, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time you, he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter there is emphasizing God's transcendence. He's a big God. He's a mighty hand and he can carry your little things so easily. <laughs> Why don't you just cast them onto his big shoulders, his big hands? He can, he can take those. Humble yourself is what Paul says or is what Peter says. But Paul here emphasizes something different. Paul emphasizes God's imminence, not his transcendence. He says, God is close. Jesus is near. You are not alone. You are never alone if you're a Christian. You're never alone. Jacob, it makes me think of the story of Jacob. Jacob's story is he's running away from his brother Esau, and uh, he falls asleep one night, you know, using a rock for a pillow, and and that, this must be why he had this bad dream, because he had this, he's sleeping on a rock, right? But Jacob has, it's not a bad dream, sorry. Jacob has a dream about a ladder to heaven. Or for all the Led Zeppelin fans, a stairway to heaven, okay? He wakes from his dream, and the point of the dream he realizes is like, oh man, heaven and earth are connected. God is closer to me than I realize. And he awakes up. He's like, whoa, this is a holy place. God is in this place. I just wasn't aware of it. That's the issue. Are we aware of God's presence? He's present. Are we aware of his presence? One of the ways that we can practice being aware of God's presence and it's one of the most under-practiced spiritual disciplines today for Christians, is cultivating an awareness of God's presence through solitude. The practice of solitude. 
Solitude is not just being alone. It's removing yourself from the noise and the crowd to spend intentional time with Christ. Jesus regularly practiced solitude so he could spend time with his loving heavenly father. So one of the questions you might ask is, if you're struggling with darkness and anxiety, is am I in a practice of meeting alone with Jesus on the regular? Daily? Maybe special weekly times? Dallas Willard says, solitude frees us. The normal course of day-to-day human interactions locks us into patterns of feeling and thought and action that are geared to a world set against God. But in solitude, we get away from the noise. We become aware of God's presence. Be still and know that he is God. Are you aware of his presence? Are you practicing the presence of God? The Lord is near. Do not be anxious. He's with you. Last practice, number three. Paul leads us into a practice of prayer. He says, in everything, but in everything, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a promise from God's word of an experience of supernatural peace that only Jesus can give. A lot of people are practicing things like mindfulness right now. And I was just looking at this Time magazine, did a whole issue on the science of happy. <laughs> how can we be more happy? And, and all this like scientific research about how mindfulness and gratitude and these things actually have scientifically proven ways of making you more happy. But here's the thing, in a secular kind of way, it's incomplete. It's incomplete because you don't have God's truth to meditate on and be mindful of. And you don't have anyone to really thank if you're not a Christian, ultimately. It's like, thank you, universe. Who are, you th- who are we thanking? See, as Christians, we actually know the God that we're thanking. We know, and when we practice Setting our minds on him, he will give us true peace. Paul, you can imagine him sitting in prison and he looking at the guard that's standing at his door and going, oh, yeah, that's what Jesus is doing. He will guard your heart and your mind like this soldier is guarding me right now. That's what he will do. But how will he do it? He said, not just pray. He says, pray thankfully. Pray with thanksgiving. I'm going to tell you, thankfulness, it must be in there. Paul is being so good by including thankfulness in here. It's really the secret ingredient. See, my wife and I, uh, years ago when we were dating, we, um, we liked um, to make um, smoothies, okay? It was my way of like flirting with her. Hey, let's go make some smoothies, okay? And... Uh, and so we went to this, one time we went to the restaurant Night and Day. Do you guys remember that restaurant? It had like, Night was like with a K, K for Night, K. So Night and Day, they're all closed down now. So back then though, we went on a date to Night and Day. 
and we ordered some smoothies and we're talking and then we start drinking our smoothies and we got like really distracted. We're like, whoa, these smoothies are so good. This is the best smoothie. I declare it's the best smoothie I've ever had, right? And we were like on a quest. We got to figure out what was in that smoothie. But we asked the server, what did you put in this? Like, why is it so good? And she said, secret ingredient, coconut milk. Oh, all right. So like we went back home and we're making our own smoothies. We bought like jars of coconut milk. We're like adding coconut milk in our smoothie. And it made them way better, like nice and smooth. And it was the secret ingredient. It was the thing we were missing. And that's the thing in your prayers. You need a secret ingredient and it's thankfulness. Like I've prayed before anxiously. Have you ever done that? You're praying, you're still anxious. But when you start putting thanksgiving into your prayers, something crazy happens. That peace that surpasses understanding begins to flood your heart. Prayer is the kindling for the flame of joy and thankfulness is the wind that fans the flame into a mighty fire. Are we thankful? Are you really honestly thankful? Can you list things you're thankful for? It will bring peace. Uh, it makes me think of my grandpa, Walter, which is actually my wife's grandfather. He passed away a few years ago. His name is Walter Thiessen. We have a Walter Thiessen in our church, actually. See, Grandpa Walter, he actually called the Walter Thiessen from our church because um, he was just trying to find out who all the Walter Thiessens were in the phone book. So that's kind of funny. He has no other connection to Grandpa Walter but that. So when Grandpa Walter was, when he wasn't putting butter in his coffee or eating spoonfuls of gravy from KFC, that's, those are loving comments, by the way. I just, those are things we love about Grandpa. But what, what, where we usually found him was um, he was sitting peacefully in his chair. And anytime uh, he was called upon to pray we all sensed that it wasn't so much that he started praying, but it was that we got to jump in to a conversation he was already having with Jesus. He prayed like that. And Grandpa started his prayers always the same. We thank you, Heavenly Father. We thank you, Heavenly Father. He was just so full of thanks and so he walked with peace. Look, those are just a few practices for your joy and for your soul. There's many more things we could talk about, but we'll look at part two um, next week. Let me just close by just telling you that I've walked through some of this stuff. Um, I've struggled with depression for years. And about two years ago, I entered a year that you probably had no idea about of real darkness. Real darkness. And I couldn't explain to you why. And through some counseling, through lots of these kinds of practices, the Lord has been so good to me. It takes time. Be patient. But if we could be a kind of community where we feel like it's safe, we can talk about these things, 
That would be so good. Joy will invade our church life here at Central. Let me pray a prayer of thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your word, your good word to us. God, we thank you for music and song. God, thank you for the ways, the gifts you give us to lift our souls. We thank you, Lord, for our families. We thank you, Lord, for our friends. We thank you, Lord, for your amazing creation in the Pacific Northwest. It's our playground, Lord. It's a beautiful place. We thank you for all of it, Lord. Lord, we thank you for food and we thank you for sleep. We thank you, Lord, for the millions of ways that you bless us every single day. God, we thank you that you are with us and that nothing will separate us from your love. We say thank you, Jesus. And we also pray that you would help those of us among us who are in darkness right now. Lord, help lift them up, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.